G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. In Chapter 3 of 1993, we're off to Tortola and Guadalupe. I hope you enjoy the ride. Tortola. That's all Mark Holder said when I asked him where else I should go in the Caribbean. Mark was the best surfer in Barbados, so I was all ears. He didn't say if Tortola was a town, a beach, an island or the name of a wave, and the conspiratorial, reverential way he said it told me I'd have to join the dots myself. I'd never heard of it and wasn't sure how to spell it, but that night's research revealed it was one of the British Virgin Islands, 800 kilometres northwest of Barbados. Cheers, Mark. Has a single word of advice ever given me more? My flight to Tortola arrived late at night, and it took a couple of hours for the friendly airline staff to declare that, yes, my backpack was officially lost. Luckily, the pack contained nothing essential. Most importantly, they hadn't lost my surfboard. All unreplaceable luggage... Passport, camera, surfboard fins, surf reports, used camera film, money and so on, travelled in my money belt or my carry-on day pack. The backpack carried only clothes, a cheap tent and a couple of guidebooks to places I may or may not visit in the coming months. So living without it for a few days would be no drama. The major setback was that I had to stay that night at the overpriced airport hotel to see if my pack turned up the next morning, as the airline staff thought possible. Trying to get some value out of the money I was wasting, I gave American cable television a try for the first time. All 50-plus channels presented nothing remotely entertaining, just news, canned laughter sitcoms, cliched conversations about basketball and advertisements for sugary foods and weight loss medications. The next morning I learnt that my backpack was still lost and probably would be for some time. With the ubiquitous have a happy day smile, the airline staff gave me a cheque for 50 US dollars to spend on essentials. But that didn't cover the cost of last night's hotel and it didn't cover the cost of a taxi ride across to the surf coast of the island. So in the rising heat of a blue skied day, I walked a couple of k's from the airport and waited an hour or two to hitch a ride. Arriving in Apple Bay, the village at the centre of the island's small surfing world, I saw head-high waves breaking just out to sea, but first I had to find a place to stash my stuff. The cheapest accommodation I could find was an airless flea pit for another ball-crushing 50 US dollars a night, at least five times over my projected budget for the year allowed. Resigned to my stay on Tortola being a short one, I went for the sweatiest surf of my life. Unpacking my surfboard from the yellow fabric lined with bubble wrap sleeve that passed for state-of-the-art board bags in the late 1980s, I discovered my board shorts were the one essential item that was trapped in my lost backpack. The most viable alternative to surfing nude was to wear the crusty full-length wetsuit I'd brought from Sydney six years before. While I thought it might come in handy in the latter stages of my journey home to Sydney, its ongoing purpose was to serve as extra padding for the rails of my board in the bubble wrap sleeve. Since it was designed for the Sydney winter, not the Caribbean spring, the wetsuit was going to induce hypothermia, so I borrowed scissors from the unfriendly landlady and chopped the wetsuit's arms off above the elbow. I thought about chopping the legs off too, but a few months later I was glad I hadn't. 
Thus resplendently attired, I introduced myself to the Apple Bay Reef and its inhabitants. The wave was a gentler version of soup bowl in Barbados. Every morning started waist-high and glassy, breaking right and left across the friendly reef, a perfect way to greet the day. Between nine and ten, northeast trade winds blew in until around four. When the wind dropped in the evening, the wind swell formed into increasingly well-spaced, head-high plus waves. From lunchtime until it got too dark to see, you could surf to the music floating across the water from the Bomber Shack, an open-walled pub built of driftwood just above the high tide line. We surfed Good Apple Bay nearly every day for four weeks, and on six of those days, when a groundswell swung down from a distant storm to the north, it absolutely pumped. Easy, fast takeoffs led to two or three fast, long-walled sections, with room for a cutback between each. If it was small, the left let you practice riding switchfoot or taking off fin first. My surfboard, named Byron, loved the Apple Bay waves. Warren Cornish from Byron Bay had shaped her for me back in late 1987. So Byron was five years old and a bit road-weary by the time she reached Tortola, but she still surfed well. For the four years prior to getting Byron, I'd ridden an antique Russell Hughes crystal vessel from late 1967. As much as I loved it, oh, the things the massive deep V and bendy fin let you do on a wave, the vessel wasn't an international traveller. At over two and a half metres and nearly ten kilograms, it would cost me a fortune in excess baggage. Further, the vessel sported an unremovable 35 centimetre fin that would be irre irreparably destroyed within a few flights. So I'd asked Cornish to make me a board that was as big as would fit into the lane-down passenger seat of my friend's yellow mini, and strong enough to survive the toughest treatment by man, wave or reef. Byron was a statuesque seven-foot-two with three thick stringers, a wooden tail block, two leg rope plugs, and loads of fiberglass. Her paddle speed gave me mobility round the lineup and made any wave catchable, big or small. She flew off the bottom, then went faster and faster with each pump, but she turned on a dime and hung on in the barrel. Boards like Byron came to be known as Mini Mals, which was short for Mini Malibus, the nickname for 1950s and 60s longboards. Minimals were pronounced uncool by mainstream surfers, despite one or two of them nearly always commenting that my board, quote, really suits the conditions today. Thirty years later, boards of this type are called mid-lengths, and are state-of-the-art cool, thanks to the classically brilliant surfing of free surfers, such as Torrin Martin, who have thrown off the dual shackles of competitive surfing and the crippling conformity regarding equipment to which many surfers still submit. For the previous five years, Byron and I had caught waves together in England, Ireland, France, Portugal, Spain, Morocco and the Canary Islands. Apple Bay soon became one of her favourites, alongside Bartraw, Koshos, Anchor Point, The Bubble and Soup Bowl. And then she surfed Cane Garden. Cane Garden Bay was seven kilometres northeast from Apple Bay. 
It was the archetypical tropical paradise of sparsely populated, steep wooded hills falling into a tranquil turquoise sea. Well, sorry for the cliches, but that's what it was, and still hopefully is. Normally it was an occasional anchorage for a handful of the luxury yachts that frolicked around these islands. But as I soon learned from the few local surfers, when the big ground swells rolled down from the northwest, the bay's northern point produced one of the best waves in the Caribbean. After a week of good to epic waves at Apple Bay, we heard a ground swell arrive in the middle of the night. At dawn, Jono and I set out to walk to Cane Garden with our boards. After an hour of walking and half running while watching the new swell surge onto the beaches and reefs, we got lucky with a lift on the daily milk truck and arrived to be nearly the first surfers out. It was still a bit raw and wild, but if you got a good one, you'd race a three-metre high face for 200 metres at warp speed. The afternoon session was even better, slightly smaller, but more lined up and groomed by the everyday trade wind. The middle section was hollowest, and you could hear the rounded river stones and old coral heads rolling against each other just beneath your fins. The waves turned electric blue and ruler-edged, literally the waves of my dreams. In the evenings, the local pelicans gathered out the back, just outside the first peak. A few times as I took off just inside them, they spread their wide wings and took off in front of me with the updraft from the wave. They'd glide a few metres ahead in perfect formation through the first section, then bank back out to sea as the wave shot into the hollow section near the rocks. It was bonkers, surreal. We had about six days like this. Bizarre also was a few years later finding a photo of me surfing Cane Garden's inside section stuck to the fridge in a beach house in the far south of New Zealand's South Island, not far from Antarctica. The day I found the photo, I'd been surfing a left point called Porridge with a bloke called Wayne Hill. We were the only surfers for 100 kilometres, so we soon got to chatting. Afterwards, he invited me back to his house for a cuppa to warm up. As we shared stories, he stopped and fetched a matchbox-sized photo from the side of the fridge. Is this you? he said, and it was. One of his friends had been crewing a yacht in the Virgin Islands and had sailed into Cane Garden that day. He'd taken a quick snap while they'd dropped anchor. He had no interest in the surfer, but he knew Wayne would be interested in the wave. He'd had a mini-print made and sent it with a letter to New Zealand. I'm hardly ripping, but I reckon the photo captures a little of the speed and beauty of the wave. The highlight of the social life in Tortola that month was spending time with John and Nancy. Jono was a Bondi boy who had moved to New York, got a green card, then worked as a rubbish collector to fund surfing trips to the Caribbean, Central America and beyond. I'd hardly spent any time with Australians for over six years, and hanging out with John was as good as being home again. Best of all, Jono and his girlfriend Nancy rented me a room for 20 bucks a night in a really nice house they were long-term renting in Long Bay, just a scenic 10-minute walk over the hill from Apple Bay. Without that room, I couldn't have stayed on Tortola for more than a week. So I owe most of these waves and experiences to you, Jono and Nancy. Thank you. I hope the last 30 years have treated you well. John caught me up with a lot of the Australian bands I hadn't heard yet. The Cruel Sea, Celibate Rifles and The Die Pretty, among others. When his mate arrived from Australia with gifts of tracks, surfing magazines, Tim Tam biscuits and Three Threes pickles, John shared the precious treasure with all of us. On the other side of the ledger, like a true Aussie, he didn't hold back 
when I thoughtlessly caught the cracking left at Apple Bay he'd waited an hour for. Then, when I suspended myself from surfing the next day, he told me to get over it and get back out there. His girlfriend Nancy was a New Yorker who tolerated me for weeks and treated me like family when she cooked great meals. She also guided me to the island's only clothing shop, where I spent the airline's emergency 50 bucks on the bright yellowest, most expensive pair of boardies I'll ever own. They were two sizes too big, meaning my bottom turns had two meanings from then on. Another faction of our community were the surfers from the US East Coast. A couple of them had sailed their own boat solo down to the island and had hair-raising stories of being caught in storms so fierce their boats had turned turtle. They were a tough crew. When I flew to Puerto Rico in the last week of March, I met a lot more of them. Before going to Puerto Rico, though, I'd better not forget Guadalupe. This butterfly-shaped island lies halfway between Barbados and Tortola, so it made sense to have a short stop over there. All the Caribbean islands have interesting and often sad histories, but Guadalupe has one of the saddest. After Christopher Columbus had arrived there in 1493, Spanish attempts to colonise the island were fought off by the indigenous people for over a hundred years. In the 1600s, however, France replaced Spain as the island's colonial repressor, and within a few decades, most of the indigenous population had died from gunshot wounds and European diseases. To replace the lost indigenous population, West African slaves were imported to build an obscenely lucrative sugar industry. In 1802, while France claimed to have achieved democratic freedom in their own country, they brutally suppressed a slave rebellion in Guadeloupe that concluded when the rebels collectively blew themselves up with their store of gunpowder. In 1848, when slavery was finally outlawed in the French Empire, indentured labourers, who were slaves in everything but law, were imported from India to fill the labour gap. Just one of so many examples of how enlightened Christians brought joy and meaning to the rest of the world through capitalism. Not. Being a French territory, Guadeloupe didn't cater for vagabonds like me aiming to live on scraps. Accommodation, car hire, food, everything was beyond my means for any more than a few days. Nonetheless, I had some great times. I walked two hours in thongs, a poor choice I discovered after half an hour, to ride head-high left-handers in what appeared to be a tropical aquarium at Petit Havre. When I hired a car for a few hours on my last day, I found a great right-hander all to myself and miles from anywhere at Pointe Platte on the northeast coast. Christian, my host at the Pension, also served as tour guide when he wasn't working. He took me to Le Moule, the island's everyday wave. And when a couple of other guests arrived from France, he loaded us onto the back of his ute and took us to Basse-Terre, the wild, beautiful southern half of the island, where we swam under the Chute de Carbet waterfall. He also took us to someone's house party, where I danced myself lame to local drum music I've searched for ever since. And on that musical note... Let's go to Puerto Rico and learn some Spanish. The trip's about to get rowdy. In the next chapter of 1993, the journey continues in Puerto Rico. If you'd like to see some photos that accompany this story, you can find them at jameswiley.com and there's a link in the show notes. The music you've been listening to is written by me, 
and played by my band, The Nomads. Thanks for dropping in. See ya.